book of Hebrews, chapter 13, book of Hebrews, chapter 13, and we'll be looking at verses 5 through 6 this morning. Last week, we looked at uh, verse 4, let marriage be held in honor among all, let the marriage bed be undefiled. Uh, it's, it's just, um, I love to see the way that scripture just dives right into the most intimate details of our life unapologetically. Uh, so last week, looking at our sexual obedience and, and holiness, and now looking at um, our money. And uh, the way that we think about our possessions, God does not apologize for meddling in your affairs. And uh, this morning, um, the Spirit uh, is intending to meddle uh, to God's glory and our good. <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, let's begin at verse 1 let, um, of chapter 3, and then we'll read through verse 6. Let's give our attention to God's Word. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Let's uh, pray for the Spirit to accompany His Word. Lord God, You've given us this Word so that we can be fed, we can be trained in the ways of God. Uh, But Lord, we need the Holy Spirit again this morning uh, to do what we can't do, to give us hearts ready to receive and hear and to submit gladly, happily to the ways of our God. And so, Lord, we pray that uh, you would uh, surprise us this morning. We maybe are simply expecting to endure a 30-minute talk about spiritual things. I pray, oh God, that this would be an encounter between the living God and his people. By the power of the Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. It's a fascinating article that I read a while back and uh, turned back to it as I was uh, studying uh, this week for this message. Uh, it's an article about a course that's offered at Yale University. It's the most popular course on campus, and it's a course on how to be happy. The title is um, Psychology and the Good Life. And uh, in the article, one of the issues that they deal with in this course is how much money uh, do you need to make in order to be happy? Uh, the, the, the writer of the article um, says, Sonia Leibomirsky, Uh, She's a psychologist at the University of California, Riverside, the author of The How of Happiness. She did some research on this question, and and this is what she found. When people making $30,000 a year uh, were asked what kind of salary it would take to make them truly happy, the average answer is $50,000. So people making $30,000, if they're asked, what would it take to just really um, make you comfortable, um, make you really happy, it's $20,000 more, uh, $50,000 salary. Unfortunately, the perceived cost of happiness accelerates the more you actually make. When you ask the same question of people making $100,000 a year, uh, they say, on average, that if they made a quarter million, then they'd be really happy. Uh, It gets more and more expensive, obviously, as you go along. If you're looking for money to make you happy, you're, uh, you're in for a very disappointing and very expensive letdown. It doesn't work that way. 
uh, the purpose of the class actually was to teach, to show students how messed up they are in their brain uh, when it comes to assumptions about happiness, that almost everything they assume to be true regarding happiness is wrong. One of the quest, uh, quizzes they have is um, you have to list five things that you think would make you happy. It could be long-term things. I want a, a, a great marriage. I want a satisfying job. Or I want the Snickers in the vending machine. Whatever it might be, just list the five things right now that you think would make you the happiest. And then the lecturer says, okay, I've got my red, penny, a red pen out. Uh, let me see. Uh, wrong, 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 and wrong. Because our assumptions are completely messed up due to the fact we live in the culture in which we live and a culture which all the uh, truths concerning happiness and money are almost uh, universally wrong. What they, what they find is that people, um, if they reverse engineer it in a sense, if you look at people who actually are happy and ask what are the common traits uh, that you find in people who are actually happy, you find generosity and gratitude to be at the top of the list. Well, the moral of the story for Christians uh, like you and me living in uh, our affluent, messed up culture is that it is essential that we uh, have our brains and hearts rewired by the Word of God so that we can break free from the cultural assumptions that really do cripple us and live our life in the joy of confident faith as we're making our way to the city with foundations, as we're looking for the world that is yet to come. And so that's exactly what Barnabas is about here. We're on his pilgrimage, and he wants to remind his readers of how to walk that pilgrimage successfully, that we do not um, get the grace of God in vain, or that we do not miss out on such a great salvation. Well, the first uh, point that I have here this morning is that our text is a challenging word. I say that uh, because if we remember the context, this is a suffering church, a church that has lost a great deal because of the name of Jesus Christ. People who are going through financial hardship because they lost their job when they came to faith. They lost their home when they identified with Christ. It wasn't that long ago, as we're reminded in chapter 10, 34, that they joyfully accepted the confiscation of their property. So surely... They don't need a lecture on contentment. They don't need a lecture on the love of money. And yet the Spirit gives them exactly that. And the challenge then is for us this morning. Uh, if it was necessary for these early Christians, in the midst of their poverty and trial, to be reminded of the dangers associated with money... How much more, friends, is it necessary for you and I living as we do in the, uh, a culture that is awash in and intoxicated by the love of money? We need to hear this message. We swim, friends, in a, the waters of materialism and consumerism. It feels natural to us to value stuff. It feels natural to us to buy things. And the, so, the, the evidence is overwhelming that the church in America is increasingly being overwhelmed um, by the consumer culture and in, 
inflicted with the love of money. Uh, research, it, it varies a bit, but it's pretty consistent, shows that uh, only about 10 to 25 percent of any given congregation actually gives 10 percent of their income to the local church. Now, 10 to 25 percent, that means uh, at best one out of four of the, the members of the church are supporting the church at that level. That's at best. Uh, the, the research is pretty consistent as well that evangelical or, or Christians, people who profess to be Christian, um, give 2.43% of their income away. Uh, evangelicals, those who actually believe the Bible is true and that Jesus Christ came to die for them, evangelicals give at about 4% on average. 4% of their income goes um, to the church or to other, uh, the cause of Christ. Uh, over the last 40 years, this author says, American Christians, as we've grown progressively richer, have given a smaller and smaller percent of our income to the ministries of our churches. Uh, such behavior flatly contradicts what the Bible teaches about God and justice and wealth. Another, uh, another evidence uh, would be the, the increasing popularity of the health and wealth heresy. Uh, the largest church in America, I, I believe, is still Joel Osteen's uh, church down in Houston, 40,000 members uh, who, are, who are coming to hear a very positive message about how you can have literally your best life now. Uh, how, does that, uh, how is that so easily accepted by people who say they believe their Bible and love Jesus? How, why, why doesn't that message just send off all sorts of alarm bells? Why aren't there red flags popping up when people hear that message? And the answer is because the underlying assumptions of that message were already there. That material abundance is the purpose of life and the, and the, um, the source of happiness. So once you've given that away, well, all things just make sense. Rod Dreher says, we have built a church that knows how to be a chaplaincy to consumerism. We built a church that is a chaplain to consumerism. Um, we just sort of go along with it. Well, let me ask you this morning, um, since the Spirit is going to meddle with our lives, are you happy with your current level of giving? Let me ask more importantly, do you think God is? Is God pleased, honored with your current level of giving? Or is it possible that you have become infected with the love of money? Well, let's look at the command, and then we'll look at the counsel. Clear command, verse 5, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. There's a negative command, keep your life free from, and a positive command, be content. Let's look at the first, this thing about love of money. It's one word in the Greek, uh, money love. Uh, money love is a thing. It's something that's infectious. It's contagious, like a disease. Uh, it, um, it hinders God's people. It cripples them. It weakens them as they're walking their pilgrim journey. And so the, Barnabas, since he's encouraging pilgrims to run with endurance the race that's set out before you, let's remove everything that hinders. And one of the things that hinders in running this race is money love. It's one of the great evils mentioned in Scripture. You know Jesus talked a lot about our relationship with money. We read some of those verses earlier in the service. 
Uh, Jesus assures us that money love is, uh, and love for God are mutually exclusive. You can't do both. You cannot serve God and mammon. There's a mutual exclusivity there. One of the requirements we know um, of, a, of an elder or a deacon who's going to serve in the church is that they are, do not have a love for money. 1 Timothy 3, verse 3. Uh, one of the evidences of uh, the increasing evil of the last days is that people will be lovers of money, Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, 2. Money love is evil. It's interesting, again, as I was doing some research, I just typed in money love. It's amazing how many articles pop up. Loving money is great. Loving money is good. Sort of like the classic uh, line, greed is good. Well, no, the Bible says it's, it's actually evil. It's evil. Why? Why is it evil to love money? Well, the the Bible says it's because it reflects a discontented heart. It's a heart problem. And so Barnabas immediately goes to contentment. Don't love money, but be content with what you have. Uh, Paul Tripp uh, wrote a, a little piece called Debt is Not a Money Problem. Debt is Not a Money Problem, where he addresses the American habit of wanting things and buying things and, and using debt to get those things. And he, he, just, he just, I think, says exactly right. Debt is fundamentally not an overspending problem. It's not an overspending problem that can be fixed by changing spending habits. Debt is fundamentally a contentment problem, a heart problem. Uh, Paul says in, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. You want gain in the world? Pursue godliness with contentment. We brought nothing into the world. We're taking nothing out of the world. If we have food and clothing, we can be content. There are, there are just a few basic principles when it comes to a God-honoring use of our resources. Uh, I could give you more, but let me just, just give you two. One, understand what money is for. It's, it's not for primarily to be used for our benefit and our pleasure and our comfort and our convenience. It's primarily to be used to meet our basic needs and then for the benefit of others and the glory of God. So <clears throat> a question that I ask myself, why is it so hard to part with our money when we uh, give it away and so easy to part with our money when we spend it away. Or, or it's so much easier to save than to give. Saving and spending makes sense to us because it, it feels like that's what money is for. It's for spending on things we want and saving for things we want in the future. Maybe, and maybe what you want in the future is just financial security. But that seems like a wise, proper use of resources. And it's not unwise. The Bible tells us, right, we, we should save. It's a good thing. But it's not the end thing. It's not the ultimate thing. It, money's a stewardship. And the, the Lord has given it to you not simply to provide for you. He's given it to you to provide for others and for his cause as, as you steward your resources and use it for things that honor and please the Lord like his church, like missions, uh, like um, benevolence, like helping the persecuted church, 
like adoptions and taking care of widows. There's, uh, money is, is for, you see, the purposes that God has given it to us for. And then understanding how to use it. Live within your means, give with all your might. Live within your means, give with all your might. After providing for your basic needs, the greatest joy that money can give to you is when you give it away. For the glory of God, for the benefit of others. Uh, Charles Spurgeon has a story in his commentary told to him by uh, Samuel Rogers. And he recounts the story of a man who was, uh, discovered the joy of giving when he was on his way to, com- to um, drown himself in the river. And this is this man's testimony. He says, I was weary of life, and after a day such as few have known and none would wish to remember, I was hurrying along the street to the river when I felt a sudden check. I turned, and behold, a little boy had caught the skirt of my cloak in his anxiety to get my notice. His looks and manner were irresistible. He said, sir, there are six of us, and we are dying for want of food. Why should I not relieve this wretched family? I thought I've, I have the means And it will not delay me many minutes, and if it does, so what? The scene of misery he conducted me to, I cannot describe. I threw them my purse, and their burst of gratitude overwhelmed me. It filled my eyes with tears and was a cordial to my heart. That's a refreshing uh, drink to my heart. I will call again tomorrow, I cried. Fool that I was to think of leaving a world where such pleasure was to be had and oh so cheaply. Where such pleasure was to be had and oh so cheaply. I'm excited about learning how to be more with eyes open to see needs and using um, my resources to bless people, whether it's my stuff, my time, uh, or my money. And, and I hope you are too. I'm excited about what, uh, as Harvest Church, as we continue to mature in grace, uh, that that spirit of generosity and, and the joy of blessing others in Jesus' name and using our resources, our time, our gifts, our abilities, and our money uh, for the glory of God and the good of other people. I hope you're excited to grow in that as well. But we got to deal with this money love issue. And, 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 and how do we break that power? And you know that power when you're walking through the store. When you see what other people have, the homes maybe they live in, the cars that they drive. How do you actually get a contented heart that is, that is able to resist uh, the, the power of money love? You see, the, the fact is, isn't it, we, we love money for reasons. It does things we like. We like what it can provide in terms of comfort. We like the security. Maybe we like the significance. We like the pleasures that money offers to us. Well, here's the counsel, then. Let's give our attention to this, because it's beautiful counsel. For he has said, those are not throwaway words. He, that is God, the one who made you, God, the one who ordains all things. Um, These are the most important words, you could say, in the entire text. He, the, the, the God whose word is unchangeable, grass withers, flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. He has spoken. That's that's wonderful news. Well, what has he said? He said, I will never leave you or forsake you. That is God's spoken message to you. And if you hear that by the working of the Holy Spirit, if you 
if you, you know, remember Jesus says, if you, he, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. If you have ears to hear, I will never leave you or forsake you. Coming from the mouth of God, you will feel something. You will feel, it will feel like sunlight is bursting into your life. It will, it will feel like weight and worry is dissipating, falling off your shoulders. Because there are two precious promises here. I will never leave you means obviously that God will be present. Now you know that. I think if I asked you, do you believe that God is present? I think every one of us, every one of us would say, yeah, I believe that. But how is that helpful? How is it actually boots on the ground helpful? Right? I believe God is present with me, you might say, but my life is still a mess. My marriage is still incredibly painful. My health is still poor. Uh, I'm still without a job. My children are still struggling. I know that God is with me, but the fact is life goes on and life is hard and I'm about wore out. You see... if the promise that I will never leave you is not like a ray of sunshine bursting into your gray world, it's most likely that you don't understand the significance and the purpose of God's presence. It's possible that you think about God's presence in your life the way you think of good friends' presence in your life. Friends gather around us when we're in pain or when we are in need. Uh, They express their sympathy they assure us of their love. Maybe they, they do small tokens of kindness. But there's not a lot more they can do. They can't fix the marriage. They, their, their sympathy is sincere and as encouraging as it might be. It doesn't pay the bills. And we can easily think of God's presence in the same way. It's good to know. We're thankful that it's true. But it doesn't really change the circumstances. But of course, you see, that's just, that's just wrong thinking. The reality is the presence of God changes everything about the circumstances, completely everything. You see, God is not present like your friends to sympathize. It's not why he's there. He does sympathize. Your tears matter to him. But that's not why he's there. Why is he there? Well, I think the evidence of that is in the second part of it. I will never forsake you. Which means that God is actively engaged for you. The presence of God, you see, is not passive. He's not there simply to hold your hand. He is present to exercise all of his sovereign might on your behalf. He's there to accomplish all of his saving purposes for your good. He's there because he's made you his very own. And he will not forsake his own. The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I will never, no, never, no, never forsake. You see, friends, the the presence of God changes everything about the circumstances because God is the circumstances. God is the circumstances. 
Your life is not held in the hands of hard, painful things, but in the hands of a loving, proactive, saving, sovereign God. So God is the circumstance of your life and all the glory of his being, his goodness, his faithfulness, his compassion, his love. God is the circumstance in all of his works, his sovereign rule over every event, his magnificent redemption of your life in Jesus Christ. God is, your, is the circumstance of your life in his word that his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him and his great and precious promises. So that means, you see, then, that your hard marriage, your failing health, your wandering children do not define the totality or the deepest truth of your life. They are not the clay out of which you must try to wrestle some meaning or happiness. You are the clay, and God is the potter. And your hard circumstances are the instruments in his hands, your loving Heavenly Father, to make you more beautiful, more fruitful, more blessed than you've ever imagined. He has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. And if that doesn't sink in, if that doesn't melt away the worry, then just stay right there. Take, take your Bible at home and, and before the Lord just pray over that text until the truth of it finally comes home. Don't skip that part. Don't, don't miss what God has said. It, it's everything. We have nothing apart from what God has said. Man does not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He has said, therefore, we can say, because God has spoken, we can speak. If God had not spoken, we would have nothing to say at all. But because God has spoken, you see, therefore, we have something to say. And not only do we have something to say, but we can say with confidence. How much confidence? Infinite confidence. Because you see, we can say a conf with a confidence that's rooted in the infinite power and infinite love and infinitely immutable, unchangeable reality of the character and the word of God. You couldn't possibly say anything with more confidence than what we can say here. And so what can we say with such incredible infinite confidence? This is what we can say. The Lord is my helper. The Lord is my helper. He's quoting from Psalm 118, one of the psalms that the people would sing when they made their way up to the temple. It's a psalm that these Christians, these Jewish Christians, would know by heart. He's quoting from verse 6. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side. Remember being in grade school and picking teams for sports, uh, sporting events? And, um, and either you were, um, you know, maybe, maybe you're one of the better players and you were trying to gather as many good players around you as possible, or you were maybe not one of the better players and you were just hoping you got on the team with the really good players. You see, it, it matters who's on your side. Well, in, the, in the, this, this life, the Lord is on our side. The Lord 
the living God, is on your side. Calvin writes, we can have no tranquility until we attain the persuasion that our life is guarded because it is protected by God's omnipotent power, that God is on my side. You see, and, and the writer is saying, you know, therefore, because the Lord is my helper, Psalm 118, therefore I will not fear. All these therefores, where you take truth and you place it down and then you stand on it. And then you take another truth and you place it down and you stand on it. Therefore, I will not fear. I think it's interesting that as Barnabas is talking about contentment and, and godliness in financial matters, he, he references a verse that talks about fear. Why? Well, because our relationship with money is so much controlled by fear. Fear. Fear of going without. Fear of not having enough for our own comfort or our own security. Fear of missing out on the good life we see other people living. Fear of, de- of being dependent. Do we like being dependent? We abhor being dependent. Having to ask for help. Going to the deacons, we'd rather go to the dentist without Novocaine. And they're nice guys. Why is that so hard? Because we hate being dependent. We hate it. We loathe it. And you see, what fear does is it paralyzes you. I remember being uh, 10 years old, hanging on the side of the swimming pool for uh, dear life, truly, because I was desperately afraid of drowning in three feet of water. Uh, the poor swimming instructor, some local high school girl, I'm, I'm quite sure, uh, she finally managed to pull my fingers out of the concrete by encouraging uh, me to hold on to her. So I did, likely cutting off all circulation and whatever uh, I'd attached to. Uh, how do you convince a terrified little boy of letting go of the side of the pool? You have to deal with the fear. How do you get people who are terrified of being dependent, terrified of losing comfort, losing convenience, losing security? How do you get them to let go of that? Well, you have to deal with the fear. You got to break the fear. Well, my friend, what fear drives you in relationship to money? Maybe you have a memory of being without, and you remember how desperate that felt and how embarrassed and ashamed you felt when you had to ask for help, and you made an internal decision that you would never, ever, ever be that vulnerable again. Maybe you're afraid of missing out on the good life. Uh, You see the, the, the life other people are living, the homes they live in, the cars that they drive, the vacations they enjoy, and your bank account in, in your mind is your pathway to what you consider the good life. Maybe you're afraid of people taking advantage of you, of, um, of being fooled in some way. You've, you've worked hard for your money. You've invested it wisely. You spend it wisely. You don't have any intention of giving it away to people who make uh, maybe either poor decisions or just decisions you can't control, even if it's the church. You see, friends, the only way you're going to and I can have a God-honored relationship with money is if we deal with the fear. Speak faith to the fear. And we have to start just by confessing the inherent unbelief of fear. Uh, the inherent unbelief of loving money and loving what money can give. You see, the truth is, you see, if, if, if a better house or a nicer car or a better marriage or whatever, if, if, if that's all that it takes to make your soul satisfied, then your soul is dead to God. 
You don't understand who you are, what you were made for. We have to deal with the fear. And that's exactly what Barnabas does. What can man do to me? That's what the psalmist does, Psalm 18. What can people, the greatest fear that we have, what can people do to us? There's no need to fear. You see, if the Lord is my helper, I shall not want. I shall lack nothing. I've never seen the righteous forsaken. I've never seen their children begging for bread. That doesn't mean that God doesn't allow really hard circumstances in our life. It just means there are no, it's never accidental, it's never unkind, it's never harmful, ultimately. The Lord is my helper. What can man do to me? What can, and it's, I love the way he says it. He doesn't say the Lord is my helper. What can, what, what can man do to those whom God elects? What can man, you know, it's sort of a general term. What can, what can man do to those whom God loves? Those, those people out there. It's not how he says it. What can man do to me, right now, me, in my life, my circumstances. What, can, what, do I, what do I have to fear? It's intensely personal. The life that I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's what Paul says. If God is for me, then who can be against me? And so, friends, that's where then the rubber hits the road in our life, that we're called here in Hebrews chapter 13 to live with our money like the Lord is on our side. And everything else is unbelief. Live like the Lord is on your side. Live like you have nothing to fear, ever. Isn't that wonderful? It's wonderful. It means we have nothing to fear as a church. When I say we're forty, fifty thousand uh, dollars low on, on budgeted giving, I'm not saying that out of panic. The Lord's going to provide. You don't need to panic. The Lord will provide. It, it, it might look like dependence. It might look like a lot of prayer. It might look like humility, selling things. That, that's okay. The Lord will provide. We have nothing to fear. And as we, in fact, learn how to use our money for the ends that God intends, we have a lot to anticipate. The joy and the freedom, you see, of that lifestyle where we're not living for this world. We're living for something eternal. We're using our resources for something that's going to last. Something that brings a smile to the face of our Savior. Live like the Lord is on your side. Parents, just a quick word for you. I just came across a, 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 a fascinating article. Um, it's amazing what you can find. Uh, this, is, this came out two days ago. Atlantic uh, Monthly, I believe. Um, why kids want things. So this researcher, Lady uh, Marcia, has been studying uh, consumerism, materialism, for like 20 years. And, she, and specifically, how do kids learn to become materialistic? Um, most parents uh, will say, most people will say that the children learn materialism just wanting stuff from their peers because they come home from school and they say, Mom, Johnny has X, I want X. And so we assume, well, uh, you know, those, those nasty peers having a bad influence on my children. Research shows uh, your children learn their relationship with money from you. She says, parents who act in ways that value things, stuff. Parents who make a lot of sacrifices to get a lot of things. Parents who get a lot of joy from buying things. Parents who talk a lot about things. They have adult children who act the same way. 
The helpful thing for parents here and also the harmful is, yes, peers are really important, but our kids are watching us. Our kids are learning from us. A lot of what kids take to be normal comes from what they see us doing. Kids are going to learn what their relationship with products should be by looking at our relationship with products. That's pretty sobering. We have 300 children here. What are we teaching them? About a godly relationship with things. That's something for you just to take before the Lord in prayer. Maybe have a conversation in your family. Kids, what do you see? And be there with a notepad. Friends, this is an area where the Lord is just calling us to really prayerfully, thoughtfully get serious about our relationship with money. You know, the heart is, the heart is, uh, it's just so complex. It's so hard to understand. Yet one of the ways you want to, one of the best windows into where your heart actually is in relationship to trust in the Lord is, is money. Let me close, close with this quote from David Mathis. He says, what we do and don't do with money puts the depth of our inner person on display in ways that we often do not see or show otherwise. Money provides a wonderful and terrible objectifying glimpse into one's heart. Who knows the heart of a man beside his maker? Well, one startling peek into a man's subjective heart is his treatment of objective dollars and cents. Love of money is not an isolated flaw or foible. It is a penetrating peek into the recesses of a soul's rebellion against God. Think of that. It is a penetrating peek into the recesses of a soul's rebellion against God. In due course, the truth will come out. Remember Lot's wife. A good godly woman in the eyes of all the friends that knew her. Married to a righteous man, Lot. Great family. But when the command came to leave the city and don't look back, what did Lot's wife do? She left the city and she looked back. It was simply too hard. The truth was revealed. Let's pray that God reveals us now. In light of the cross of Jesus Christ, in light of all that we have in him, in light of all the love of God poured out to us, multiplied to us. We read that at the beginning of the service, right? May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Multiplied. So that we're, you're, you're the most rich people, we are the most rich people in all the world. Oh, friends, let's pray that Jesus Christ helps us to live like that in relationship to our money. For his glory and his alone. Amen. Well, God in heaven, you know us. We are, now, we are no secret to you. And you know how much we love our money and how we trust in it. You know how we love the ability to buy things. You know how we love the ability to save up for the future and the comfort that gives us. And, oh, God, you know how slow we are to use our money as good stewards for the benefit of others and for the cause of Jesus Christ. And, Father, we confess that it is a wicked thing. And we confess that, again, this is our sin, not someone else's. And that, Lord, we are, as parents, so often teaching our children awful things about what money is for and why you give it and where life and happiness and comfort are truly found. Father, I just pray there would be a radical uh, work of the Holy Spirit in our lives 
that we become a people who can see our sin and confess our sin and before the cross of Jesus Christ who gave his life for us, oh God, that we would happily give our life to him, all of it. That every dollar we own, every, everything that we possess, Lord, is surrendered to you, to your purposes. And that we would happily live as pilgrims, knowing that, Lord, uh, this, the things of this world, they're, they're, they're good gifts, and yet they, they, they don't satisfy, and they, they easily and quickly pass away. And we have the opportunity in, in this one life we get to live, and the, and, the, and the money that we make, and the things that we have, we have one opportunity to use those things for the glory of God. Oh, Father, please, by your spirit, give us a vision for what we could do as we walk in that path. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's uh, surrender our things, at least in song, as we sing together, um, all for Jesus, all my beings, ransomed powers. Everything that I have belongs to him. Let's confess that together in song. God's beloved who rests beneath his wings uh, receive the benediction from the Lord. Just a quick reminder, boys and girls, after the benediction, we're going to just take a moment so you can come up for singing time and that uh, we can have a little more space out in the foyer. Receive the blessing of the Lord your God. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen.